The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting The Super 8 Years. This official selection of the 60th New York Film Festival was written and narrated by French author Annie Ernaux, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Literature. Compiled from gorgeously textured home movies, the film offers a remarkable visual extension of her ongoing literary exploration of history, family, and memory. The Super 8 Years is now playing at Film at Lincoln Center and DCTV's Firehouse Cinema in New York City, and is coming soon to select theaters and digital platforms. Thank you all for joining us. This is one of our most anticipated and exciting events of the year. So we're really glad to be doing this with you. I'll say a little more about the event, but I want to call our honorable guests, our panelists who are ready, who have sharpened their knives and they're ready to debate the list as it's revealed. So I'm going to first call onto stage my co-editor, Clinton Crute uh, at Film Comment. Next up, we have Ine Prakash, who is a curator at Maisel's Documentary Center and the founder of Prismatic Ground. We have Alyssa Wilkinson, who is a critic at Vox. And we have Bilga Ebery, who is the critic at Vulture. No, very pedigreed panel we have here. A little bit about this list. So we have, uh, we do a bunch of lists at the end of each year. The two main lists are best films of 2022. So we poll uh, nearly 100 film comment contributors from around the world. And we ask them to submit their top 10 US releases of the year. So these are films which have received a theatrical or virtual release in the US in 2022. And we also asked them to submit their top 10 films that premiered this year at festivals or where have you, but have not yet acquired U.S. distribution. So we do that list because we really want to shine a light on films that are still looking for a distributor that our critics think are worthy. Um, So today we're going to count down the top 10 films that had U.S. releases this year, the best films of 2022. We're going to count down the top 10 films. We'll talk a little bit about each one. Then we'll show you the full top 20. Um, So if your favorite film isn't in the top 10, you know, just don't get mad too quickly. You know, wait for like 15 minutes. Before the countdown, though, I want to ask each of our honorable guests, is your number one... So they know the top 10 films, but in alphabetical order. We didn't tell them the rank so that they would be surprised too. <laughs> so there's going to be an element of surprise, but you know which films are in the top 10. It, it, did any of your number ones make it? Did yours, Bilga, like your personal number one film? Uh, no. And, and I, I can also add that not a single movie on my top 25, I think, made it into the top 10. So, <laughs> so, I, okay. so, so the, the imposter syndrome on my part is, is very high right now. Now, that just means you're cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. An extremely underground list. Uh-huh. For this year, I'm sure. Um, uh, I'm not quite as cool as Bilga, but my number one is not on the list either. Uh, my number one is not on the list. I'm almost as cool as Bilga. Uh, I think one of my top 20 is on the list. I'm, n- you know, not even a, uh, what do we call them, venerable guests? Uh, honorable guests? Um, and uh, my number one film is also not on this list. So that just goes to show just how kind of esoteric this list is. I don't 
think, okay, we'll get, I don't think it's esoteric. Okay. But my film is also not in this top ten. So, so either you guys are in the wrong room or we're yeah. in the wrong room. Well, you know, this is democracy in action, right? I voted in this poll. <laughs> we all vote. Oh, I forgot. No, I did vote. I voted. Um, but I actually do like our, our top ten. Anyway, so without further ado. All right, number ten. There we have it. Ooh. Uh, Ricky D'Ambrose's The Cathedral is number ten on our list. I'm going to hand it over to Alyssa for this one because actually when I first saw the film at Sundance this year, we had Alyssa on a podcast and I remember she loved it. I do love this film. I in fact did a Q&A for it in one of these two theaters uh, in September, which was wonderful. Um, well, if you've seen The Cathedral, you know how wonderful it is. I will tell you why I love it. So it, it, it is a film that sort of... It's one of many films this year, actually, that slightly recreates its director's childhood. Um, it's sort of autobiographical, autofictional a little bit. Name the others. Oh, gosh, there's so many. After Sun, The Fablemans, um, Armageddon Time. I feel like there's maybe The Eternal Daughter, depending on who you talk to. Um, there's it's autobiographical, at least, sure. Yeah, yeah, or autofictional might might actually be. I don't know. I don't like these terms very much. But this is a, you know, this is really interesting to me. It's certainly the souvenir series does it. Um, Ricky sort of recreates his growing up years in a kind of ordinary family, I think, in many ways, but mostly regarding his relationship with his father, who's played by Brian Darcy James, who's incredible if you've ever seen him on stage or screen. Uh, one thing I really think I resonated with in this film is that Ricky and I are around the same age. Um, I'm 39, I think he's 35 or 36. And so a lot of the texture of our childhoods is very similar. And so like the toys or like the wallpaper borders on the walls or the different things that you bump into. And the book that the title comes from, right? The book that the title comes from is a book uh, by David McCauley who wrote like The Way Things Work and these books about cathedrals and pyramids and things and this was the stuff of PBS uh, when I was a kid so I love that uh, I felt like I was seeing parts of my life on screen but I also love how he renders um, his dad I think with real like sort of a cold eye that also feels very uh, like many of the films that have done this this year and maybe the best um, as if he has empathy for him without excusing him or getting gushy or letting him off the off the hook. I, th I agree that this did this the best this year of the films that did that. And I, th I think also it's, I love that the title makes it seem like it's this grand, uh, almost, you know, art house epic, but it's really about like a David, you know, it refers to a David Macaulay book that he read as a child. And I think that that kind of um, oscillation between the epic storytelling of one's life, the epic, like the Proustian trip down memory lane, and the and the kind of day to day emotional grind of living in living in his family and um, watching his parents split up is really kind of what very well done in the film. And one other thing I'll add is that all the movies that do that this year, I think, um, maybe not Armageddon Time, but for the most part, um, are people thinking about how photography or filmmaking gave them distance to be able to re-examine their youth in different ways. And this film does it especially well. Yeah, I also love this film. It's on my top 20. I mean, it's it's not maybe number 10, but and I was so thrilled to see it because it's Ricky's second feature. 
you know, he's only made two films and for it to uh, get such a big consensus vote is really remarkable. And I think one of the more exciting things about our list this year, as you'll see, there's quite a few uh, early career filmmakers in there. And I, you know, Alyssa, it's so interesting. My life is nothing like Ricky's. You know, I didn't grow up in Long Island and or, or in that time period. And yet... I feel the film touched me so personally, even though there was nothing that was mirroring, you know, my life. And there's something especially in how funny it is. It's hilarious if you've seen it. It has so many perfect little jokes. Um, sometimes they're, they're jokes that are just product of a particular composition, you know. There's just some object in frame that... Uh, is sort of comedic or just the tone in which someone says something. And there's this kind of deadpan uh, performance style that Ricky has in his past feature, notes on an appearance, in his short films. But there's still such a sense of simmering feeling in this one. I mean, it's very funny. It's also quite rancorous. It is. And it's it's covering a period of time. He and I spoke about this when we did a Q&A here, but it covers a period of time that he and I now both think of as kind of an interregnum in American history where we were kind of brought up to believe everything, like the wars had been fought and everything was going to be peaceful going forward and just seeing sort of the late 90s fold into the early aughts and understanding that that actually wasn't going to be true for our lives was important, I think, for both of us. And he does this, he accomplishes it well, I think, in the film. Right, I think we should mention that the film has this historical framework through inserted archival clips of the Bush administration and I think 9-11 and, you know... Um, Oklahoma City yeah. and some of that stuff, yeah, that, yeah. Like, we kind of vaguely remember, but only as being on the TV in the background. Right. Even though it's such a microcosmic film, it's just about this family, this boy, mostly set within their domestic spaces. One detail that I love about it that really captures the film for me is that... There's a scene or there's a part of the story that takes place in the Bahamas, but they didn't have the budget to go to the Bahamas. So he just uses a postcard photo of the Bahamas and then there's sort of this narration over it. And all you see on screen is this postcard picture of the Bahamas and it works. Mm -hmm. You picture everything that you need to picture based on that one 2D image. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I actually uh, really admired about the film. It's it's not a film I, I love personally, but but I was very impressed by a lot of it. And you know, there's a, there's a thing that um, a, a friend of mine who's also a filmmaker and critic, and is probably you know, some of you probably know him, Dan Salit, uh, likes to say about certain filmmakers, like they have the mark of God on them, which is like a, a young filmmaker. And and Ricky's you know wrong young, but. Um, you know, they have the sense that they're just, like, marked for greatness. Um, and that's kind of the sense like I got. Like a megalomania? Or no, 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 not, yeah. not, not no, not, not in that yeah. way, but in terms of, like, well, they're, they're, you know, they, they have a certain confidence in their work. Like an intuition. A, a confidence Less. in their work and an ability to kind of get things up. Because that's the thing about, I mean, when you see the cathedral, you know, it, it was not made for a lot of money, and, and you can tell. Um, but some of the things you're talking about, the way... He's able to, I mean, it's like an epic story. It's like an epic family uh, drama, uh, but told through, you know, I mean, something really important could be happening and there'll be like a shot of the floor, right? Um, and he's able to do that. He has the rigor and, and the confidence to, to be able to do that. Um, I, I will say, I, I remember I read two reviews of this film and, and 
one of them said something like, um, you know, the, the 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 adults in in the boys' life. I forget the the, the boy's name, but uh, Jesse. The, Jesse, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the adults in Jesse's life don't seem to don't seem to take into account his feelings, and they're always like fighting around him and stuff like that. And then the other review said uh, the adults are very evasive around Jesse, and, and they never let him see. It. And I was like, see, you know, nobody really knows what the fuck the movie's about, but <laughs> we're all very impressed by it. Um, but that's actually that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are a lot of films where you know. It's open or to does interpretation. It, it, does it speak more to the fact that we all have such different familial experiences and the film somehow forces us to watch it through the lens of our own familial yeah, history? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this has been an uh, issue, might be too strong of a word, but a factor in the way that um, all of these films have been received this year is that everyone kind of thinks they know what's going on in the film. And in most cases, obviously I'm the only one who watches them correctly. But... Um, <laughs> But in most cases, I think maybe we're projecting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're designed to for the audience to identify with them, right? That's yeah. We're supposed to project, so that's good. Yeah. Na. I mean, I I'm probably I'm not um, as enthusiastic about this film as others, but I was really struck by the meticulousness of the way the period is evoked, despite the clearly low budget, and uh, you know, it there was something really really. masterful honestly yeah, about that sourcing those toys like i don't know how you find some of those anymore <laughs> I mean, like yeah. that little play school clock with the face on it crazy i mean bilga said rigor and i think that's kind of the the film is it rises above its its uh, meager you know budget through this kind of aesthetic rigor should we move on to number nine? Looks like we all like the cathedral more right, well, or less. Well, it sounds like Bilga might. Uh, mm. not too much. I like it. Think, I, like I think Bilga's mincing his words, but we'll we'll get we'll get to you know, yeah, more divisive ones. All right, next number, number nine. nine. That's right. The novelist film. The novelist's film is number Who's, nine. Who's who are the hong heads in the room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, uh, you've come few. to the right place tonight, my <laughs> friends. Not to foreshadow, but... <laughs> Clint! Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you can't spoil it. It was a good year for it's Hong. It's barely Let's a spoiler in this case. <laughs> when is it not a good year for Hong Sang Soon? Well, you know, he's in the volume business. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I, I've never... I am not a Hong Hen. I've, I've, you know, they're as uh, critics, programmers, in a way, you know, our careers are premised on the idea that we have taste, whatever that is. And, you know, the one thing that has really made me question my taste is, is the just absolute fanaticism for Hong. And I just look at these movies and I just, I don't see it. Uh, but I did this year. I was like, I'm gonna give it my all, and uh, I, and I was touched by the novelists. Film. Yeah, I think I'll this, say that. this film is probably one of his most um, accessible for those who come in hating. Most interesting, yeah. I'm uh, sure. not condescending at all to Ine. <laughs> for those who maybe don't understand the complexity and richness right. of what he has uh, is offering you, for those who want some semblance of something going on, right. Well, that's another thing. That's another way of putting it. Um, I love this movie, and it's in my top five. I think I don't Clint is a Hong list. stan. I'm for a some Hong background. head, but long of yeah. long standings, like you know, for many many years. I think since I saw Oki's movie, and I think that this is. I think he does go through. You know, not every year is a strong year for Hong, in my opinion. I think he, you know, he works through ideas. He uses films as to sketch out kind of different ways of making movies, different ways of thinking about the world. 
And I think this year he kind of the uh, the handful of films that he released this year, which is a weird way of putting it. <laughs> um, three, I think, came out this year. Is that right? Um, in front of your well, came out this year. Well, two released this year. Did Walking Up get released? Walk Up does not. Walking I don't think was yet released. Two were at the festival, right? Two at the fest. Two at the New York yeah. Film Festival. Hard to keep track. But I think three theatrically uh, released theatrically this year. No, two re- released theatrically. Introduction. That was three. this yeah, year. Was this oh year my too. god! So three this year. But in the the two from last year's festival season were then released. Anyway, yeah. those films. Uh, introduction in front of your face and then the novelist film and walk up I think he's like uh, really uh, hit on something that he's been working towards that's uh, that I think in a touchdown and that there this novelist film is really touching it's about uh, you know a lot of things yeah I mean <laughs> w- what's moving Love. is thematically it's really about uh, presence Right, and the 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 title I don't think it's a spoiler to say is about like paying attention to what's in front of your face, right? And being present in the moment, Um, and the way wait in front of your face or the novelist film. Oh, sorry, I'm talking about the wrong movie. (laughs) Don't that doesn't mean anything. Ignore what he just said. So easy to do. I mixed up two Hong movies. That never (laughs) happens. (laughs) Yeah, the novelist's film is about a novelist who. Makes a film. I, okay, uh, now sorry. Now I have the right movie in my head. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> I'll say this is a, a great movie for film programmer representation. Having a film programmer as a character in a movie. Um, how interesting could that be? <laughs> um, but let me let me just defer to someone else since I completely uh, am working with the wrong frame of reference. That's okay. Um, well, I mean, I think that that's you know common with his films. Everybody, it's, it's a truism that you know his films are easy to c- confuse. This movie is is about a novelist who goes to visit an old friend in a village outside of Seoul and then goes to look at some sort of local monument, some tourist attraction, encounters a filmmaker. I mean, it's really like nothing happens. It's a nothing happened movie. Uh, nothing happens movie. But then she runs into this actress, a famous actress who's sort of retired and then played decides... Played by Kim Min-hee. Played by Kim Min-hee, who is, you know, for those of you who don't follow the uh, South Korean tabloids is Hong Sang-soo's paramour um, who, for whom he left his wife of many years. But none of this is all sort of like, again, maybe this is another auto-fictional film in that way. In that, it, I mean, it definitely is, but it's not as overt and that kind of autobiography um, creeps into his films and I th- in a way that I think is really compelling. So then she decides to make a film and that's where the title comes from. We've got to that point. I just wanted to respond to Ine a little bit. I think that sometimes I I do like Kong, but I do I sometimes can't figure out why. You know, I watch a film and I I don't know why do I like this. And sometimes I wonder if I like most of the things he makes because I liked the first thing he uh, first thing of his that I saw, which was right now wrong then, and I absolutely loved it. And the thing is, once you see a Hong film, every subsequent film feels like a variation of that film or feels like it's somehow building on that film. So for me, the first text was so wonderful that they all now just expect, like, are expanding. Well, what was so wonderful that. about that first, about the first Hong, though? I mean, okay, there's a movie from, like, 2016, so we're not gonna... Well, no, but I'm just, I think that, like, those same things hold true. I don't think that, like, I mean, I think you're right. 
that he's use, he's kind of using the same tools in every movie. But what's remarkable to me is that he's able to get like different results or able to, th- and, and I think it just speaks to the fact that he's seriously trying to communicate something that can only be communicated through the means of cinema. I mean, I think the point I was trying to make was that sometimes I wonder if I would like this movie if I just saw it, you know, without knowing who Hong Sang-soo was, without having seen his previous works. But that doesn't actually cheapen the movie at all. It's, you know, his his work is a project. Its appeal is cumulative. And I think it's fine. Movies don't have to be like standalone objects floating in a vacuum. You know, you can, you can in, enjoy movies... Well, people do love universes nowadays and, you know, cinematic universes. So multiverses. Multiverses. Even. So I and, I, and I do think that these last, this last cycle of films, including the novelist film, I think I like them a lot more than the last couple of years films because Hong is really reflecting, I think, on mortality in these. There's a, just this rawness, this, um, this real grappling with what, cinema means and what you can say with it when you know your life is I mean not like ending but you know when you're in that stage of life when you're thinking about what you've done and what more there is to do that is quite remarkable to me in this film especially and this film has this amazing Clint wrote a beautiful feature about it for film comment and you described that great ending scene which is like almost like pure documentary which we never see but apparently it's not from what I gather, like it's all planned out. Does it, Alyssa, what are your thoughts? I mean, well, My thoughts are that I the novelist I haven't novel. finished watching it, but I am enjoying right. it. I just haven't gotten there yet. Bilka? Um, yeah, this is actually one of the films on the list that I that I have not seen. I I do like Hong a lot, actually. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've I've been watching his films for years, but he's been a little little harder to keep up with of late. Um, <laughs> but uh, the one thing that I will say and. Maybe we can talk about it when we get to in front of your face a little bit, but you know, there's so many. Bilga. <laughs> sorry, that, that's already been. Like, that's already. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry. Uh, yeah. This is, this, that was my. It's it's a big night for Hong here, um, but one of the things that you know, in sort of the, the the festival art film world, you know, there are a lot of films that work around evasion and about holding back information. The Cathedral, I would say, is one of those films. Mm. Um, and what I love about Hong is he, he doesn't do that. I mean, you watch one of his films and you get, even if it's it's a miniature, it might be a film about just one interaction or something like that, but you really get a sense of these people. I mean, through the performances and through their interactions, even just through the, the physical way they move around each other and the way they talk and their postures and things like that, you really get a sense of what these people are like. And, um, and a lot of films in this world, you don't get that. You know, I, mean, I would say, you know, I mean, the, the cathedral, as impressive it is, as it is, I don't really get a sense of what those people are like, you know? Like a directness, you mean? Yeah, yeah. That directness is, it can be very refreshing, and that's one of the Especially reasons... Especially because ambiguity has almost become like a trend now, no? Yeah. Wait, what a fetish, you if you will. <laughs> ambiguity. Oh, ambiguity. Yeah, I mean, and uh, and it's not like Hong is not ambiguous. I mean, there's, there's so many things unsaid in his films. Obviously, it's not like they're just, you know, he's not making... It's not like Douglas Sirk movies or something like that, but, but, but there is. But this one gets there, or this one gets cl- yeah. as close as he's going to get to yeah, Douglas Sirk. One, but, but, but there is a. But there, like you said, and I mean, in front, and in front of your face, which may or may not be discussed <laughs> later, I think also. Can. But there is a presence there, and that that 
or not presence, but like presentness that I love about his work. Um, I now remember what I was thinking about earlier, which is that a, a, he's sort of like a, it's a, it's a, he's like a process artist, like in the art world, they're, they're process artists. Like, so you have these, you have films where they're, the ideas are not fully formed. And I think these films, one of which is on the list at least, are fully formed. There are and snipers he's, waiting to take right. you down if you break the embargo. <laughs> the embargo is strict here. Um, with that in mind, I think it might be time to move on to our eighth film. Drum roll. Number eight. It's a big one. No! Literally a big one. I want to start with Bilga because... So none of these films was on your top 25, so Nope was not on your top 25? I don't think so. I, I, I like Nope. Um, I'd love to see it again. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed Nope. I, I feel like it's maybe of his films the one I like the least, but I still like it. Um, you know, I, it, it felt a little bogged down in metaphor a little bit, but I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, uh, it's, I don't know. Like, Those I, are I, fighting I words. What do you down. want from me? <laughs> I, I actually, I like the movie as well, but I think bogged down in metaphor is a, is a good way of, of putting. Who's going to stand up for no? Okay. So bogged right. down in metaphor is like Thank my you, jam. That is what I want to see. Like give me, well, maybe not all the metaphor. I should refrain. I do go to Cannes. That can be rough. But um, I don't know. How could I not love a movie that's about spectacle culture? Like that is everything that frustrates me on a daily basis in my job. And everything that he's doing about it is about spectacle culture. But he does it in this weird sideways way where people are still emailing me and being like, well, what's up with the monkey? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so I have a blast writing about movies like this because I'm not, I don't, I'm not interested in like emotionally connecting with it. I'm just super interested in what are you trying to do and did you accomplish it? And I really think he did. Mm. That said, I will say, I do think it is of his three features, the one that I have um, like not, like if I had to rank them, which I famously hate, but if I had to rank them, it would be number three. Mm. Um, but Us would be number one, so I don't really know what Us that would be number me. one? Yeah. I agree. Same yeah. here? Same. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. I wouldn't... Also, I, gotta, also, I gotta go, guys. I can't. Yeah. This is not the panel yeah. for me. But, and, and the, <laughs> the, the way I really appreciate this film is as a piece of Jordan Peele's larger project, you mm -hmm. know? The Hongian the, perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you made the Marvel comparisons. I didn't have to. But uh, I, so, I mean, the, the, he's, he's clearly working with the same themes and endeavoring on this project to, um, you know, talk about blackness in America, but also the way it manifests. Uh, and in this case, through spectacle and through film and filmmaking in a way that implicates us and really forces us to question not just, you know, what's up with the monkey, but like, how do we participate in this yeah. culture? And, and how really do we not, that. not find ourselves able to disconnect from the culture, which I think is a really big part of the movie and possibly the most, most horrifying moment, which I think is in the trailer is when the veil lifts on the woman who was like mauled and you can see her face and it is like the most pure horror moment for me. And it's really just like you, you can't like, it's addict. It's so addictive. You can't get yourself away from it. Um, I don't know that. <laughs> I mean, it's like one of the biggest films of the year. So it's not like 
you know, people are disconnecting themselves and going off and watching Hong Sang Soo movies, but um, wait, but wait, it definitely wait, hold on a minute. well, <laughs> but it is the movie that I would show <clears throat> undergraduates over and over again to like talk about spectacle and yeah. addiction and all that stuff. I love this. I, this is my favorite of his movies, and I think because it's because it's a little bit more evasive in terms of metaphor. Like I, the monkey is not. Clear. It is not clear. I guess spectacle. What's the sneaker? What is, yeah, what are these things? It's just like there's these weird, surreal, and kind of like really imaginative images and just ideas that that come and go that make the movie a little like more compelling to me than us, which I think is maybe not my favorite, I would say. But we don't need to get into it. I love us as well, and I loved Nope. I really loved it. It was one of the most fun experiences I had in the movie theater this year. And I, I really love Jordan Peele as well. I wouldn't rank these movies because all three of his movies feel very different to me. And so I can't even really rank them because there are certain things I like more in one and then there are certain things I like more in another. I think Us is very rich and kind of painful to me. It's a movie full of pain. Nope is super fun. And it's great to look at. I mean, I haven't really seen anyone do like the close encounters kind of spectacle, you know, in the last few years in the way that Jordan Peele has done with this movie. I don't mind the heavy metaphors. I love that about his movies. He is not scared to just like be obvious and didactic in some ways. You know, I I, I think that he has this love of like 70s, 80s, you know, genre cinema where the metaphors were obvious, you know, these big allegorical movies where like, I don't know, uh, the shark is really your parents' divorce or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and he's like unafraid to work with those big unwieldy elements. But also, I think he is an artist of the vernacular. You know, he's able to take really vernacular elements of society, of the way we live right now, of the zeitgeist. I mean, just the title. Nope. Every time it's said in the film, that one word says so much and is so funny, but it's not like he's taking it too seriously. It's not like he's injecting it with some, you know, highfalutin, like, intellectual... You know, he also knows that this is fun. Like, how people interact and live, there's an element of just fun to that, but there's also a lot of social dynamics underneath it. So I don't know, man, I was so sold by this movie and I was so thrilled it made it this high because it is a big popular movie. And sometimes among critics polls, like those movies don't, you know, get a little bit of bias almost. Well, it's a, it's a big popular movie, but it, you know, like, like we've talked about, it it, it it traffics in metaphor and has, I mean, it has a kind of arty structure. It's not, you know, it's not straightforward necessarily in its storytelling. Um, it's not confusing or anything like that, but it is a film. I think critics love this kind of thing because it, 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 it makes us feel relevant, right? Because it's the kind of film about which you want to write things and you want to read things. and People yeah. want to read them. And people yeah. have actually yeah. seen so. it. And you want to go home and Google it after you see it. To yeah. Read it. Uh, and there's flying saucers in I. That's cool. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> it is pretty cool. So, a yup for nope. I had to pull that one out. I'm sorry. I had to do Except that for Bilga, who is not on his top 25. <laughs> I am eager to see his full top 25. Though. 
Well, just because just a film's not on a personal list. Yeah, like, yeah, you know. I didn't, I didn't dislike yeah, but it. This is a listing. I, right. yeah. I own it on Blu-ray. Right. Right. Lists mean everything. Yeah. That's all we're here to Entirely That's the objective. premise of this evening. No, and I, actually, I will add, one of the things about, like, and, and when I said I, I'd like to see it again, I, I meant that. I mean, it is a film that actually makes me want to see it again because there's clearly a lot going on, you know, and, and you know, I, I enjoyed it the first time. I found a lot to think about, but walking out of it, I, th- I thought to myself, oh, I, I actually would like to see that film again and, and, you know, think a little harder about the things it's trying to do. And, you know, that's, that, I think that's actually an admirable we gotta, thing for a film. Yep, we got to, yep. You're the best rewatcher that I know, so. Anything yeah, I have to review, I try to watch at least twice. Yeah. I also want to shout out the ensemble cast in this movie, oh. which is incredible and like a total reason to go to the movies, you know? Yeah, absolutely agreed. Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Stephen Yan, I will, I will go buy, you know, buy that ticket every time. Next. Should we move on to number seven? What do we have for number seven, folks? It's in front of your face. Oh my God, what a shocker. That's true. <laughs> No one saw this one, yeah. The Hong film I liked. <laughs> All right, well then why don't yeah. you... Why so don't this you was the one you liked, not the novelist film. Or correct, yeah. Oh my God, okay. Uh, this is the one I was talking about when I, you know, the title is, it's about, you know, looking at what's in front of your face and being present. And I think it's actually very moving going on that journey with this uh, character. There are these beautiful interludes um, where the character is in her head um, sort of repeating these affirmations, you know, slightly self-helpy spiritualistic affirmations um and the way the way they build the tone of the film i think is actually really uh moving and and leads to uh a revelation that ends up being all the more powerful for it this was also in my top 10 along with the novelist film introduction not did not make the cut i had to limit the number of hong films although i i will note that when our individual lists are released tomorrow Hong is well represented on many people's lists. I think uh, in front of your face, as as anyone was alluding to earlier, that it's in the title. It looks death squarely in the face. This is a film about mortality and about managing, you know, what remains of of life, and and uh, in a way that is not moribund or you know maudlin in any way it's it, it's still a Hong sang Su movie it's funny there are people who drink they drink they you know make cracks at each with at each other that kind of thing so i think it's uh yeah it's not in my opinion as good as the novelist film if i have to rank them if i'm ranking the Hong sang Su movies tonight so um, you disagree with this order yeah. yeah i guess so but you know i'm not gonna complain i did see it and I'm going to be honest, my memory is not great for it to the point where I had to go read the plot to remember that I had, in fact, seen it. But I kind of love that about his films. I feel like this happens to me every New York film festival. The list gets posted. I'm like, okay, how many Hongs and when? Um, and yeah, then I, I mean, I think that's... that. I mean, I, I all cop to that, too. Like yeah. Not, the, the, not with these two movies, but, like, introduction... I did not. That's why I didn't make my list. I don't I know like, if I saw. I can't really remember I mean, which one they, that was. They blend together, but I also kind of love that. Like, it was it the one in which the filmmaker gets drunk at the bar? <laughs> like, I well, that's that's like that's the texture of everyday life, and that's I think why they blend together. And I um, deeply enjoy watching them, and not everything has and to. Great artist of the vernacular, right? and that's why yeah. I think this film especially suits his style so well. Is it? It is about the everyday, you know. 
One of the things I mean, I, I was saying earlier when we were discussing the novelist's film about how present his characters are and how present his filmmaking is. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that I, I noticed while watching this film, uh, I mean, I don't know how well people know. I mean, I know some of you have seen these the movies, but um, in terms of how familiar you are with the, with the, the quote-unquote story of the film, but it's about... Um, uh, and I don't want to even want to say aging actress because she's not that old, but like you know, middle aged, middle aged actress um, who uh, who we same find, woman who plays the lead in the novelist film, uh, that same actress yeah. who, who we find out halfway through the film is actually dying. Um, but what was interesting was, you know, through the interactions, and, and there, there's kind of this. The, the the terms always sound obscene and weird when you're talking about it with Hong Sang Soo. I want to say set piece. <laughs> there's a there's a set piece in the middle of the film, which is basically her having uh, a meal and, and drinks with a, a director who's an admirer of hers. Um, and it you know the scene just kind of goes on and on and on. And and there's you know th there are s several quote unquote revelations during the scene. One of which is that she's dying. The other which is that he wants to sleep with her. Um, and uh, the things, but these revelations don't feel like revelations because we kind of sense these things. Um, but it doesn't feel predictable in a negative way. It's it's almost like. You know the, the the performances and 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 the and the way he shot everything is so you know delicately observed that we kind of like are in these characters' heads and we sort of know where everything is going. Not in a bad way. We sort of know where everything is going because we're sort of in there with them. Um, and that's that was something that really struck me about this film. And I think that I think that's true of a lot of his films, which is also why they're not you know they kind of blend in because they don't have that sort of like narrative jolts that that happen where you're like oh my god she's dying you know how shocking it's like yeah i don't know i thought yeah. i think she I th yeah i thought she might it's be it's not dying, easy you know? to pinpoint oh that's what happened in that film because there isn't anything that stands out as happening yeah. exactly yeah. yeah it's just it's all it's cinema at the cadence of life which is which is something quite wonderful i think that's a good note to go to the next film on number 6 is Oh! Wow! All right, some fans. Some fans in this here. Is, this is the one film that was on my top 20 that made it. I'll into take the top it away. 10. Uh, I, I mean, I just think, all right, it's a huge um, sort of uh, undertaking to decide you're going to make a movie that's about a person, an artist, but also about the opioid crisis, but also about a certain period in New York's history. Uh, so to do that successfully, I think, is a huge accomplishment. Uh, and I think this film does it. It's incredibly um, complex uh, in its structuring, you know, and it really beautifully incorporates Nan Golden's artwork as well. Um, you know, it's a tearjerker and incredibly thought-provoking. And, yeah. I just realized that we need to say the title of the film. This is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Laura <laughs> for Poitras's, podcast listeners. For podcast Sorry. listeners who are... Now scrambling to Google the list and while they're listening, listening along. I love this film. I think it's incredible. But two things that stick out when I think about it is one, it's like odd that it works as well as it does because there are two big threads that are getting woven together in it, which is sort of about like Nan's family and also Nan's present. Um, 
and and the um, the opioid crisis and sort of her activism, and the fact that they work together so well is really remarkable. This is just like not easy to pull off as a nonfiction filmmaker. Um, and on top of it, I just was really delighted having having seen Nan's work in museums a lot and wishing that I had a copy of it and knowing that that was like prohibitively expensive because it's it's video art, it's not just like a movie, that um, so much of it is in this film and preserved this way was felt really important to me because it is uh, her work, like The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which I've sort of seen in museums all over the country at different times. As prints, usually. I mean, yeah, as prints, you know, at, like at the Whitney or like I saw it in Seattle once. And I've just sat mesmerized watching it because it's incredible, but it also is a, um, it preserves history. You know, it's it's images of people, some of whom aren't with us anymore, or certainly of a moment, and that it's in this film and it's done so seamlessly with the narrative. It feels like a magic trick to me. I, I don't know how Laura did it. Laura Poitras did it, but she did a great job with it. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. That's actually one of the things that's most impressive about the film for me, you know, because Laura Poitras is is not a filmmaker who tends to make movies like this, um, and this was kind of a departure for her. In, in some ways, it's you know, it has it has the trappings of a more conventional documentary. There are you know talking heads, there's archival footage, there's you know family pictures and stuff like that, and um, fly on the wall kind of Veriday stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and, and she. But she, you know, she she structures it in such a way that it feels, you know, very vibrant and new and like something you've never quite seen before. Um, and I, I I was impressed with how she she wove. I mean, it's, I think it's more than two threads. It's, I mean, it's multiple threads. She's because it's, uh, you know, the story of Nan Golden's um, career. Uh, and then you know the, the AIDS crisis, but then you know it, weaving through this present story of um, her activism against the Sacklers, who you know who fund a lot of things in the art world, which is something she's a part of. Uh, and then, but then also you know getting into why she's involved in you know, in activism about the opioid crisis gets into her her own addiction. And then, and then, you know, part of her, you know, part of her story is also the story of her sister and the story of her family. That was the one part that, you know, I mean, the, the story of the sister kind of, it, it comes at the, I mean, it, it's there throughout, but it really kind of comes at the end as almost a kind of explanation for why she's been so driven about this uh, over the years. So, so that there's a kind of, coming back home quality to it at the end, which I found very powerful. I did, I, my only, it's not even a criticism, but I, but I did walk, walk out of the film wanting to know more about the sister. Like I, I wanted, you know, there was a, I, I felt like I had a lot of unanswered questions about it. But at the same time, I think part of the tragedy of that story is that there are a lot of unanswered right. questions exactly. about the sister. I mean, uh, no, it's not a spoiler to say the title refers to the sister and it's, Maybe the most powerful moment I had in the cinema this year was 
when the title of the film is revealed and the context in which it's revealed. It happens so fast. It's blink and you miss it. And usually when the title drops in a movie, it's not a fun moment unless it's The no. Leonardo DiCaprio uh, meme. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> but this was, I, I was shattered when it, when it came yeah. on screen. Yeah. And it left me like you, Bilga, wanting to yeah. know more about this. You know, I actually, I loved this movie. I was moved and destroyed by it, but I didn't include it in my top 20. And I'm still sort of not sure why. And I'm still thinking about why. I mean, list making is a very arbitrary exercise at the end of the day. You you have 25 and then how you get from 25 to 20 is sometimes just like, you know, just make whatever, you make up some rules for yourself, right? And one of the rules... I guess I made up in that moment was that I wanted to choose films that felt more formally adventurous. And this didn't, but I don't know how to reconcile that with the fact that I just love this movie. And I think there's what I do admire about Laura Poitras's work is she's not afraid to be direct. She's not afraid to give you information because information is political. The information she gives you is political. So she's giving you information very directly. At the same time, I can't shake a sort of bias I have against conventional documentary that has talking heads and that has ch- information in chapters. So I feel kind of almost ambivalent about my decision to leave it out. And I don't... Yeah. I mean, I will say that's the reason it made it in for me is that I can't even remember the last time that some movie with this form I found to work this well like most of the time it does feel very conventional and made for hire and like all that stuff can be useful journalistically or informationally and this one just like came together in some other form and it really was the end where I was like oh that was really good um and it took the whole movie to convince me so I mean I do think it pushes in subtle ways against the that those conventional forms documentary forms in that like it's not a biopic it could have just been like archival footage and telling this tragic story of Nan Golden, famous artist. But it, it it brings in this kind of journalistic interest in digging beneath the in that information. Present and it's also not a political documentary, and that although it par- partly is. So you have this kind of weird hybrid form, and uh, I do think it's it's pretty um, it's you know remarkable movie in that it straddles that very well and with a lot of skill. Yeah, and I actually, I think it is more formally adventurous than it appears on its sleeve because of what Bilga said. It is, there's something really interesting happening there structurally where it's not hitting the familiar beats, um, but winding uh, the threads in this this way that it really has to to make them all work together uh, and that it's done kind of like a house of cards. And, and there's, there's almost a, a, a secretly autobiographical quality to it also, which is, I mean, it's Laura Poitras making this film. You know, her, her other films, she tends to be more of a participant in almost. That's not quite the, the right word. Um, and, and that's also one of the things that was kind of surprising about this film when, when I first saw it, because I thought, oh, you know, it's... Yeah. She shows yeah. up. But but but, but yeah. then but then as you watch the film you realize oh this is actually really personal for her like how how does an artist become an activist you know that idea you can sense her grappling with that idea you can sense her grappling with that idea in all of her work but in this one you feel it feels like she's maybe come out on the other side of it and and, and maybe found a way to address that idea. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was great to see at TIFF she uh, called out the festival, both TIFF and Venice, for having Hillary Clinton uh, platformed, uh, which just felt so, you know, fitting for her. She's always going to be conscious of the institutions she's working with. And that's actually also why I admire the directness of the film, because I think for Poitras, you sense in her films that what she's trying to say is more important than what the film looks or feels like. I mean, which is not to say she's a careless filmmaker at all. Her films are formally very, you know, thoughtful. But her politics are very strong. You know, she really cares about the things that she's making movies about. And that's very, I mean, that's always been really inspiring to me about her, um, that filmmaking for her is a tool for something else, you know, and it's not an end in itself. It's occurring to me as we're talking about this, though, that, you know, this is another movie about somebody uh, narrativizing their life and looking back and, t- and telling a story about it. And I think we've seen a couple, and, and, and therefore also about spectacle, putting that life into a museum, onto the, onto the walls of a museum. And I don't know if the next movie falls into that category. We won't know There's until it's out. revealed. Are we ready to go to the next movie? Because we could. This I do feel like all. I do feel like we could keep okay, talking Bill about this Bill's guess is EO. I also, before <laughs> we go, I do want to shout out the doc, that this is a documentary, and like, it's nice when a documentary appears on an end of year list. <laughs> so wait, wait. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, wait. We had a we had a whole bit that we were gonna do, I guess, down there, right? Well, well, because Bilga said it has to be EO, so I uh, thought that, uh, was, that was interesting. E- yeah. Well, EO is not necessarily on the list. Let's just make that clear. Uh, uh, I said EO because you were saying it, the next one is maybe not autobiographical, and I was like, well. Ah. Yeah. Well, like, I was wrong. Clint this was throwing was a little... very much autobiographical. Clint was throwing a little red herring in your life. <laughs> yeah. Definitely autobiographical. So to the say crowd... that EO is not autobiographical. Uh, who's to say? I mean, we can it's autobiographical that. to the donkey. Well... Uh, Maybe we'll get to it. Uh, So big Eternal Daughter fans here. That was like a big whoop. I think valid. A valid whoop. I seem to have been the one who's seen this movie. I I have not seen this yet. I love Joanna Hogg. I I love her meticulousness. I fell asleep after. Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, that's fine. We liked it a lot. I love this movie. Um, So this movie is in the souvenir universe, um, which makes me very happy. Kind of in the souvenir universe. Lots of universes, multiverses. So many universes. I mean, I'm not going to accuse... Well, anyhow, that doesn't matter. Um, I don't know. I really love this movie. It's so... uh, you kind of know what it is going... I think you know what it is going in, or at least you do at the... I'm just going to spoil an element of it, which is that Tilda Swinton plays both parts in I this movie. I don't think that's a spoiler. That's not that's a spoiler. Like, yeah. That's the, that's the plot. Um, Tilda Swinton plays both her... her both. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. What's the character's name? Julie is the Julie. younger... You remember younger Julie from the, um, from the souvenir, who is a stand-in for Joanna Hogg, or a... Yeah. Um, and Julie's mother who also is like wonderfully played by Tilda Swinton in the souvenir movies. Um, but it feels like a movie that is very self-reflective about whether it is all right to be making itself. In that it's about, in that whether or not it's okay to talk about oneself so openly. Yeah, and whether to mind one's, one's family, to mind one's family, yeah. grief. For the purpose of a film. Yeah, you know, they've gone to this big country house and then most of the movie is um, 
is them kind of having conversations uh, throughout the right. movie and sort of, and also you think it might be a ghost story and then it kind of is, but not really the ghost well, story that it presents itself presented as. presented as like yeah. a horror movie. In fact, it opens with a scene of them driving in like the back of an old timey car down a foggy of lane. Peel. Yeah. <laughs> First and half was spooky. It's, it's yeah. like, but it's spooky to the point of like being ridiculous. You know, like she's clearly leaning really hard into the spookiness and that kind of haunted house, British Gothic, horror, like the innocence, uh, Beatrice Loeza, who wrote about this for film comment compared it to the innocence, the Jack Clayton film. Yeah. And it, there's like this kind of old spooky British haunted house yeah. thing. Yeah. And you've got this like front desk girl who like can't be bothered and also maybe might like murder you. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. You just like really don't know what if you're watching. If you've seen the funny. new White Lotus, I feel like, you know the two hotel managers Nathan Lee who's also a film comment contributor pointed this out to me that there's like they're from there's some kinship between those two hotel managers my favorite moment was uh, that from that character is there's is when uh tell Julie goes to ask a question and she and she asks the front desk person she's like let me check and then she just clicks on her mouse for like Two minutes, it seems like it's, and it's just rapid clicking and looking at the screen. And I think it was just like you know a moment that we've all experienced, but taken to an absurdity, an absurd extreme. And there's clearly nobody else in this hotel, and you kind of know that from the beginning, and that you know that sort of feeling of emptiness and like the strangeness of the situation builds, and then it turns out that it is empty and strange, but for reasons that weren't immediately evident from the building or from the beginning, and also that this really is about not just me and my mom, which is like a movie that we've seen, but also me and my family history um and like, and me and my art making and, and my me art and the making, stories yes. that I tell about my life and the way that I tell them and yeah. the and the things I borrow from culture in order to communicate those things and it, you know this is I think it's a really like brilliant film in that way it's interesting because all the spooks are misdirections kind of so I don't know they teeter somehow between comedy and horror a little bit because you can't tell if Julie is just overly sensitive and on edge all the time if and and if she is assuming the worst and therefore we are there's just it just the film stays in an ambiguous place in which is a really kind of it manages to combine several tones very yeah. delicately without ever kind of overplaying its hand and mm -hmm. um, i think i've mentioned this before but one scene that just hit me so hard was there's a scene where julie wants to celebrate her mother's birthday. So they have a little dinner and Julie gets her a lot of presents and they, has a special, I think, some kind of dessert made. And her mother's like, I'm not hungry. I'm not going to eat right now. And Julie just loses her shit. I mean, she has a minor fit. She starts crying like, why are you doing this to me? Why won't you eat this meal? And anyone, any daughter who's had a mother, I think can relate to that. You know, when you just are so frustrated and resentful at your mother for something completely inessential. While you're trying to do something nice for your mother. You're trying <laughs> like, you make it about yourself. Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Like, why won't you perform for me? You know? Um, and I thought that just... Sorry, the, a bit of myself came into that. Um, but I thought that really nailed what I loved about the movie, that it's so without cliche and so delicately just captures how hard it is to understand your mother mm -hmm. and to feel yourself 
twin, like so close and sometimes like a twin of your parents, but and I'll have all these expectations from them, but also feel a lot of guilt, like you owe them something, and all that is made fraught by the fact that she's making a movie about her mother, you know? A movie that we that we are watching, as it yeah. seems that we, you know that we discover that we're watching it. Some, and it, I think like that's the the Hongian tenden- tendency here that I think. <laughs> and I think another thing that remind that this movie reminds that I think is similar to Hong is that it seems like kind of a minor film in many ways, even though I think it's so rich and so um, there's just so much going on. It does like you walk out and you're like that was it was very personal and very specifically about something that is certainly universal but also not um, you know of great political importance. But I do think it also adds dimension to the souvenir films to watch yeah, because yeah. it it's it adds like an ethical level. To I liked all. it more than the souvenir films. I think because it's much more playful. Yeah. Uh, overtly playful. It's it's like clearly a COVID era film too, which I just yeah, appreciate. Yeah. And it uses those restrictions. Another thing that's like similar to Hong, I guess. It kind of creates, you know, art out of restrictions yeah. that are, you know, maybe not what they intended to do originally. Yeah. Are we ready? I just want to know. I mean, I, like Please. I said, I, I haven't seen this film yet, uh, but I'm very uh, happy to hear people say such great things about it. One of the the, the reason why I didn't catch up with it when 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 I first had the chance actually I, I was at Venice when this premiered and I, I I was supposed to see the the press screening and then I couldn't because I had a deadline or something like that and then I was talking to some people afterwards this speaks to what you were talking about about its seeming minorness because um because to a person they all said oh that's you know I'm a big Joanna Hogg fan but that's one of the weakest films I've ever seen by her. So the initial word out of Venice was actually very negative about the film. And you know, this is the, a thing that happens when I'm like, okay, fine, I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna write about it, so I don't need to see it now. I'll see it. I'll catch up with it later. And then you know, it came out here, and people were were raving about it. Um, so I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it, but but so it New is New York you know, appreciation is, of the uh, termite art. I think yeah, no, I mean, it, it is interesting though. So you know, when someone makes something that seems minor. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that happens at film festivals, right? Because everybody expects each new film to be just like this huge revelation. And then somebody makes something that's like really small and personal and a little off, a little weird. And, you know, people, you know, thousand, you know, 2,000 film critics walk out of this morning screening thinking, uh, I don't know, you know. And then like a month later, when it's actually had a chance to sink in, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was actually, you know, amazing. <laughs> I also do wonder if, because it uses genre elements, which none of her previous films have done, I've watched all of her films, I love her films, um, and this film is a lot like all her films, the way it uses space, you know, it's about these interpersonal relationships, it's about class to some extent, Um but I think the fact that she uses these popular genre elements, although in very unexpected ways, I wonder, I, I always feel like people kind of immediately set aside genre as something a little more... Yeah, and comedy. Unserious, yeah. yeah. You know, jokes. They're, yeah. they're like right. jokes in this and that, I think. Um, well, we liked this one. Yeah. I think we, except for those of us who fell asleep. No, that wasn't a negative judgment. Oh, I mean, it is yeah. a sleepy film. I That's think a negative judgment on Inne, not the film. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> well, everybody has to sleep. Moving on, number four, we're getting closer and closer yeah. to the pinnacle. We have Saint Omer. Yeah. yeah. 
I lied there too for my. Yeah, this is this funny. was in my. This is too low for me. I think I'd like it to be higher. I mean, this was one of my favorite movies of the year. Same. Mine too. I mean, by Alice Diop, who uh, before this had made uh, only or at least primarily documentaries, uh, and comes into this with completely that sensibility. Um, it's a film that feels almost unlike anything I've seen before. It's. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're looking sort of, or at least I was for the reasons, like, why did she make a fiction film out of something real when she is somebody who normal, her, her normal reaction is to film something. And it, I think partly because it's a commentary on the real, but also about her relationship to, um, the, the material she captures. So there's a sort of framing device in which a character who we can take to be a stand in for the director, um, attends the trial um, of a woman who has is has killed her daughter, and um, like an infant daughter, yeah, infanticide, yeah. yeah. And um, so the film is about her testimony. A, lo- a huge chunk of the film is this woman's testimony, shot from the same angle, and in a way that's incredibly powerful. Um, but then it's also about the the our main character's reaction to that, right? And our main character is is pregnant, which is, I think, an important part of the, Very significant, of the film. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I when I find myself trying to describe this film to people, I have had trouble because I'm like, well, in some ways it's a really straight ahead, I mean, like sort of almost deadpan courtroom drama, um, except without almost the courtroom drama element. It's like in a courtroom and it is a drama. Um, it's but, like the later scene, the later parts of a Law and Order episode. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just people talking. But um, I really like have recurring sort of memories that hit me out of nowhere of the scenes of this journalist character in her hotel room, kind of grappling with motherhood silently in the face of having listened to this commentary, and that feels like something I don't really ever remember seeing in film. It's so raw and so visceral <laughs> um and uh and and yeah it really hit me like a ton of bricks when i saw it it's funny St- structurally it actually kind of reminded me of some romanian films uh because in in the way that yeah. you know the first half is uh i mean the, you said deadpan i don't deadpan's the word but it's like dry and and very direct and 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 just odd in that way and restrained and maybe restrained, yeah. um I mean, you can use any number of words to describe it, and all, all of them are loaded in some way. But, you know, the, the first half, uh, it's not, not even it's like the first two-thirds or something like that, it is, is, is in this dry manner. And then the, the, the back thirds kind of explains, not narratively, but explains emotionally kind of what's going on. Uh, and without sort of getting to, to that end, you're not maybe going to understand the choices being made in the, in the first part. Uh, and in that, in that sense, it feels you know there's a there's a, a slightly intellectual exercise quality to it maybe, but it's also you know a very very moving film in parts. Um, it, it's interesting how many films we've had this year, and and maybe this is just kind of where my mind is at. But like how many films we've had this year that are about parenting, and about shitty parenting. Um, and, and I mean, there's a lot of films, a lot of films about you know the the just the 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 inchoate monstrous trauma that parent that parents leave on kids 
which as a parent is really kind of frustrating to watch sometimes because I'm like, listen, we're doing our best. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of films. I mean, a lot of like in all the Beauty and the Bloodshed. There's this thing at the end where they sort of trying to explain, you know, what what um, Nan Golden's parents did to her sister, and she says, you know, my parents were just not ready to have kids. And I'm like, no parent is ready to have a kid. Like any, anybody who's had a kid can tell you, you're not ready. Once you have a child, you're just like, oh shit, I'm totally not ready for this. Um, and and it's just like have you know having been through that experience, I, I watch these films and I'm kind of like. Just you wait. <laughs> Just you, one day you'll see how difficult this is. Well, this is an odd thing to say in the context of this film. <laughs> no, I mean, well, well, I'm not talking about her. Uh, I'm talking because because so much of what we find out is about because we see the woman's mother, her, right? her own relationship. Right. So I'm not talking I, yeah. about like you know the, the mother killing the child. I'm, I'm talking about her mother because we later find out that. You know, there's there's something about how her mother raised her, which is why she's so kind of emotionless when she's talking about what she's done. Uh, and then there's a whole thread about the the journalist, yeah, the journalist slash filmmaker's mother. Um, so there's a there's a lot going on. Sorry, that's the one and those flashbacks are told through camcorder footage, which I believe is constructed and another visual motif this yeah. year. Yeah. But in yeah, the I, mean, I think there's also so it's not the same footage from we of her family. No, she recreated it, but based on her own home video footage, Alice Diop's own home video footage. And when I interviewed her, she she said, you know, her Alice Diop's mother died when she was relatively young. Um, so. Creating that home video footage for the protagonist, she said, was like creating memories she actually never had, you know, um, which was really powerful. There was a period this year where I, where I also was like, another movie about like a terrible family relationship. Like, it's just... I, like. But, you know, I think what is interesting about this film is I don't even know if it is about a terrible family relationship, you know, because... The remarkable thing about this film is that it does not give you any answers. You you spend the whole film, along with all the characters in this courtroom, trying to grasp at answers. Why would this young woman kill her daughter? And no one has any answers, not even the woman herself, you know? And I think that... Yeah, I didn't mean this movie. This movie I loved. No, but I, I'm just saying, like, I don't even necessarily think it's about parenting in a direct way. E the idea that it's more about is making you confront all the assumptions you throw to make sense of women, especially black women, black mothers in France. So in the course of this court case, they're trying to, they're like, is it because her mother was cruel to her as a child? Is it because she's an immigrant? Does she believe in sorcery? Is it because she had this older white, you know, partner who was sort of neglectful? And Every possibility just leads to a blank, like an opaque slate. And so what you're seeing is your projections, not actually who she is. And the kind of stripping away of those projections until you get to this climactic moment. Right. But and so it's incredible. It's a film about not understanding. It's, the fil it's a film about our inability, ultimately, to understand other people. Like, Ultimately, everyone's a cipher, and that's really important in the context of race in the film, you know, that this idea that we're all, you know, this, I, it's this idea that we're all one as, you know, we're, we're all the same, and if we relate to people, if we can have empathy for people, then we can be not racist, and then we can be not misogynist, and actually, 
empathy is a limited goal. Like empathy only gets you so far because we're all mysterious. It's horrifying to imagine the Hollywood version of this movie. Oh my God. Well, you know, and the film is about the social system that exists that enforces these things that, you know, it's in this courtroom and the courtroom is extremely hierarchical. There are rules that everybody's following and the rules sort of keep bumping people in the directions of And that's also why it's a little dry because it's a courtroom. Judicial proceedings are dry and didactic. But that's emphasized. Like the restraint is very, there are literally like a few shots that we keep cutting between. And I think that's very intentional. Um, but I, I agree with everything you said, Devika. And yeah, it's about that when when you withhold judgment, the fear that arises when you realize that you are you are also capable of anything. Yeah, um, yeah and I also want to shout out We, which um, is unfortunately that was on my list as well, not on our top ten, but I think is is a documentary made by Alice Diop, um, which is a well, I'm sorry to give away one little <laughs> bit, but I think that uh, trying to run just, a tight it was an amazing ship here. movie that. <laughs> kind of takes the opposite formal track from St. Omer in that it's sort of max, a maximalist uh, investigation of similar themes, whereas this kind of strips things down and interestingly uses fiction to do that. But yeah. And We is on movie. It's streaming. It, it is also, it came out this year. So we, we, we recommend it. And I think we're ready to tick down to number three on the countdown. Number three is... After Sun. Speaking of uh, family relationship movies. With camcorders. With camcorders footage. Auto-fictional elements. Yeah, and bad parents. And this was on the New Wave list too, right? So many, I imagine many of you here are also fans. Who, After Sun fans in the... Yeah, let's let's do an informal poll. Okay, so what I'll say... There's many things you could say about this film, which I really do dearly love, but um, I almost didn't see it. Uh, it was in Critics Week at Cannes, which can be, um, depending on the week, a better or worse use of your time. And so I don't remember who exactly, but somebody grabbed me and said, you must see this film. And I was like, fine, I'll go see this film. And I did, and I was like completely knocked on my back. And then it's, you know, it is it is pretty remarkable, but I think I've seen it a couple times twice. And one thing I do really um, appreciate about it is that uh, I have had a lot of conversations with people about what is actually happening in this movie. Um, Like what actually happens to the people in this movie? And it it is sort of opaque. And I know we talked about ambiguity and the fetish and whatever. And I I think people have better or worse feelings about that. But um, I really appreciated that about it, that I'm, I don't totally know. I have thoughts. It's about like a father and a daughter who were uh, maybe this is in, it takes place in the early nineties. Um, she has a no maybe. fear hat at some point, yeah. so that pretty much says ninety three, ninety four. Also in the cathedral, yeah, in a cathedral recreation of childhood mode, and uh, she's maybe twelve years old. I think she, she is twelve. She's years old, eleven. Right? Eleven, very yeah. specifically. Yeah. So, although it's refracted through the frame of memory, so right, right. we're introduced to her as an adult, and they're flashes back to that and they're on this kind of turkish so it's yeah it's all looking back at this time this vacation with her father and uh her father and mother are split up and um it's like a weekend or so at a turkish resort hotel and you know uh over the course of the this vacation it becomes clear that the father is maybe deeply unhappy i i I don't maybe i should not be the one talking about this movie because i have like I'm not 
the biggest Clint's fan. I don't hater. dislike. I'm not a hater, but I'm not a lover. He's he's depressed for sure. We depressed, know that. Yeah. And then the other things around that were not. Right. I don't think we're ever really. We given. should also clarify or just mention that the dad is played by Paul Mescal. Yeah, can't knock yeah. him. Yeah, and uh, I, Alyssa, I almost also did not see this film at Cannes, not just because it was in Critics Week, but because he was in four movies or something. <laughs> this Cannes. No, because I until that point had never seen a moving Im- image object uh, starring Paul Mescal that had been good. Not a single movie or TV show that he's been in I have liked. Disagree. So <laughs> I was like, I this man seems lovely and beautiful, but he's jinxed, okay? Just not landing any good movies. But then I was talked into it. It was really a breakout, and I had the same reaction. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say this, that they love the movie despite themselves. That there are aspects of it that can feel sentimental. There's aspects of it that can feel simple. I mean, it's a very simple movie. It's about father and daughter on this vacation. The father's unhappy and they're sort of, the daughter's trying to, you know, she's young. She doesn't understand adult misery, you know. She's trying to understand why her father, who loves her so much, also seems to be elsewhere all the time. It's very simple, but it just gets to this emotional core, every person I've talked to has been destroyed by it. I mean, I mean it just brings I cried. Up. But as you're talking, I'm also realizing why I didn't like it, which is that I think that in the, it, you know, in a way that uh, the Eternal Daughter, for example, uses, comes at these, comes at similar familial issues really in a really oblique way and uses weird genre elements and is very imaginative in order to evoke like a very specific and personal experience that the the viewer is then invited to kind of identify with this just hits you with like the tear jerk moves I, like for me and it and it works you know disagree yeah. i disagree yeah all right well I, I, Thank I, you, I, come at me. I don't find this movie sentimental i mean i find it very tender it's it's just funny it's like of, of, of all the movies to find sentimental <laughs> like uh, you know because it is again it's actually also an evasive movie I mean, we've talked about this ambiguity evasiveness these aren't necessarily bad things uh and and, and uh, you know one of the things that the i mean there, there's a there's a there it's all it's a weird magic trick that this movie pulls off where it doesn't tell you what it's about um and it leaves out a lot of information um and yet at the end of the movie you you kind of know what's happened uh even though there aren't really many indications of of what's happened I, 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 here i am being as guilty of this extremely thing. invasive I, yeah but 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 at the same time i mean it, but, I would say my my it's not again it's not so much a criticism but I I didn't love the framing device itself the the shots of them in the club I was kind of like all right this is a little I'm not I'm not sure I'm 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 down with this I will say you know I, I've seen a lot of films where um where where people have uh, existential crises in in Turkey uh, and and. <laughs> And, and and when I I, 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 I happen to be Turkish, so when, when I heard about the premise of this movie, I was like, oh God, what what are we a metaphor for this time? Um, but I thought the film actually handled that relatively well. Um, no, I, I like the film. I, I do like the film. Vilka, uh, you have to program a series, Existential Crises in Turkey. I, I will fucking program the hell out of that series. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny because actually the film is not about 
Turkey at all. It's like in this garish little resort that could be yeah. anywhere. I, mean, I would compare it to Cancun, of, right. like an American frame of reference. That's kind of part of it. It's like a guided tour. They're part of a group of English tourists. And, and he's just kind of doing his best, which is the feeling you keep getting is like, he's a very young father. Like he's considerably yeah. younger than I am. He doesn't even and seem like a bad no, he he's seems like a good all. dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, who's like... He's he, on his top of his Tai Chi. He loves his yeah. daughter's mother. They're just not together now mm-hmm. for some reason. And you can kind of fill in the backstory. And I feel like every time I see it, I'm filling in a different backstory, which I really... It l- makes me lean in. I actually do like the framing a lot. I love the kind of clubby scenes even... Because, I mean, the thing about that, like that kind of light, strobe lighting and the darkness. I mean, it just brings up something primal, you know? That's why people dance in the club. Like, you it loosen up, British it loosens like you up. a very British thing. Yeah. But also this, I was, I think what it comes down to for me, these flashing between the older self and then the younger self who is the protagonist for most of the film, is you get the sense of a person who doesn't know what's going on and then a person who knows what happened and both of them are witnessing this together like this older self who knows and the younger self who doesn't know they're both witnessing this pivotal moment together right and that just guts me I mean just thinking about this older self looking at her younger self who doesn't know what's going to happen and like it's and trying, I think, to make sense of it, trying to grapple with like what could have been different, you know, what could she have done differently? I don't know. There's something very powerful and universal about that juxtaposition to me. I think in some ways it's the most legible of those auto fiction movies that do the same thing, but in most of those cases, the filmmaker, we have to um suppose that he's out it has been a he ha, is out there doing that looking and what charlotte wells provides us with in the film is a character to sort of sink into who's doing that looking which might account for some of the sort of reception of it like in the fablemans we're just thinking of this spielberg some guy, guy. yeah <laughs> like seeing the older spielberg James you know, at the club whoever, right, well, it would be yeah. cool if he did a, if he did appear in the Fablemans and like, <laughs> walked through I was just gonna say I, I really like this movie and w- one of the things about it um is that I do love a good cry you know but I I it, it felt like one of the first times and a good nap, that I was clearly. watching it <laughs> yeah no, no lie there I it felt like one of the first times I was watching uh, something by filmmaker Charlotte Wells who's around my age who came of age cinematically at the same time and in the same way as me so I'm like oh you also love uh Terrence Davies and the Taiwanese New Wave and Sofia Coppola maybe I don't you know I, I feel like there's this uh formal resonance that just totally corresponds to the way I learned about movies and grew up loving them uh that really hits for me in addition to you know everything else about it well, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, of the various films that, that we've had this year that treat these these subjects of kind of looking back at your childhood and, and, and your parents, I mean, I, th- I think this is, this is the one that maybe uh, best captures that quality that, that I think everyone has had, which is remembering something about something that one of your parents said or did when you were a kid that you remember, but now as an adult, you 
you suddenly understand what that moment meant as something that you something that you didn't quite grasp at the time but somehow remained with you and then like 30 years later 40 years later suddenly it comes on you and you're just like oh right there was that time when my dad said this or there was that time when my mom did this and suddenly like it makes sense and 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 that this film really captures that quality really well I think maybe we should move on to number two, but I do also want to uh, point out that there was another movie, a Spanish movie called After Sun, that I kept confusing this movie with when I was looking for information about it. And uh, this one is literally cool. named for the stuff you put on your skin, especially if you're British and you get burned in the in the sun. Yeah, there's a is, is scene that a British where term after the I don't. I mean, it's, like a it's a brand. Product? It's a it's yeah. A brand. And there's a scene where she's putting it on his face. Yeah. Which I only caught the second time. A, a metaphor, it, you it, might ca- say. it comes up often in the movie, actually. They're rubbing this lotion onto each other. Um, all right, so number two, but any guesses now that we have two? Right, I'm curious. Two left. What remains? We've Mihaig, got tar, a lot of tar. Tar, a lot of tar. Okay, EO, decision, decision to, leave. to leave. All right, let's reveal. It is EO. EO. We have EO. Gergi Skolomowski's donkey. Picaresque. Um, Eo, any anybody surprised? Anybody shocked? Any strong any? opinions? I loved it. Uh, I uh, one of my favorite film going stories to tell this year has been seeing this at Cannes uh, and and going to see it with a friend and um, you know they I kind of heard them weeping throughout the movie and I was like this this is amazing we're like on the same wavelength I was so moved as well it wasn't quite. The tear ducts weren't quite coming, but it turned out afterwards that they were laughing and they thought the movie was completely ridiculous. And I, I, um, it is it, cold. I can't, that is yeah. <laughs> um, I remember you telling the story on the can podcast. Right. Yeah. But it's like, uh, it's a hyperkinetic, um, retelling of us. Oh, Hassard Balthazar, the Bresson movie. And I think to its credit, it doesn't try to emulate that movie formally. It's yeah. totally bonkers. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a ride, and I, I was on board the entire time. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I also had a memorable viewing experience in that I saw it in a screening where the fight a fight broke out over here. Um, oh yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. I wait, had no what? idea what was going on. There was a press screening, and there was a scuffle in the back. Yeah, a, what? a loud scuffle. It was about. I'm going to need names here. Guys. Oh, I, I don't know who was Both there. your friend who <laughs> thought it was so terrible, and we had some somebody guesses, was like, "You weren't crying," and the other person said, yeah. I, was, "I was laughing," and then the things. Uh-huh. I would say the quick. experience heightens it for me and that this is a movie with a lot of like scuffling and um red images and stuff like that and I um uh it's amazing unto itself everything you said I also just and we were talking about this I, I found myself thinking of all these like animal movies I remember from the 90s when I was a kid that we would watch were like like Milo and Otis. yeah where it was like animals were the protagonists and I was as a kid I was always like how did they do that and watching this I was mesmerized by just some of the scenes where I, I don't know how he did it I think it was incredible that's not a great reason to put a movie at the top of a list, but it is a very good reason this to watch it. No this re- is a little bit more reason. air bud than Milo Notice. I just had to get that joke wow. in there. Sorry. Yeah. I, I just love the idea of, uh, you know, Skolomowski, like, f- taking, you know, Hazar oh, Balthazar, Bresson's film, and, I mean, he's not remaking it. It's a different movie, but but 
you know, I mean, Brisson is so austere and, and so restrained. And this film is just like maximalist, <laughs> you know, just out of control stylized. Uh, and, I, and I love the idea of him kind of approaching it from, from that angle. Um, it also, you know, it, it, it's funny because some people have called it a departure for Skolomowski. And, and, I, and I feel like it's actually, the donkey is very much like one of his protagonists. Kind of this, this like, uh, naive is maybe not the word, but, but this like sharp observer of the world who is slightly lost in it. I mean, that's, that's just like so and many Stylistically, it's in keeping with... Yeah, this is yeah. the man who made the shout. Right. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, these movies are insane. I do not know if this movie is good. I have spent months, I watched this movie in May, I still don't know it's, whether it's good, and that's why I like it. I generally, I didn't know when I watched it at Cannes, I sort of, in a you and your co-viewers experience, I was like both of you in one. When it opened, I was like, this is completely ridiculous and sappy. And then from scene to scene, I was rocking between, this is ridiculous and just, you know, just trippy and just style over substance to, this is incredibly inspired and like nothing I've seen on cinema, you know, in cinema. And um, I, I I like it because there isn't much out there right now. There, was, there, there weren't a lot of other movies I saw this year that felt so unpredictable moment to moment that felt like they were both kind of cheap and at the same time brilliant that were kind of like, assaulting me in a certain way with images but also confusing me and then dazzling me so I yeah so I don't know if I can call it a great movie but it's wonderful and weird and it's the kind of movie that a lot of people have found reinvigorating you know people have found it like it's just electrified them and made them kind of have a different experience with cinema this year. And that's true for me too. You guys did a great interview with him, which I thought was, was really uh, fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, really revealing and really, and it was interesting hearing him talk about the film because a lot of it's actually about like, you know, talking about, you know, the red rivers and stuff like that. And he's like, "Eh, it's, it's about, you know, factory farming (laughs) and and people eating meat. He said that he just wants people to eat less meat. When they which le- reminds the me theater. of Gunda, really, from last year, which is a right, film right. I think about kind of on the regular and have inaccurately described as involving a three-legged chicken on a normal occasion, a number of occasions, a one-legged chicken. Um, but it is interesting to like center the the effect that comes when you center an animal as your main character um, is really, I think, you know, maybe in documentary it feels kind of like yeah, that's a way you can do it. And in fiction, it's like, what? Yeah, and you inevitably, you know, the viewer kind of projects or anthropomorphizes the animal. And that happens here too, I think. Yeah. You know, we already... I will say, I'm a vegetarian. I've always been a vegetarian. And I just like don't have patience for movies that try to use narrative to try to convince you to not eat meat. Also, I don't know, who's watching this like donkey tromp through some Italian castle with Isabel Hooper and thinking I will never eat meat again. Well, that was the thing. That's the great thing. I did not, I did not get that message from this film at all. I just found it hilarious that in your interview, that seemed to be one of the main reasons why he made it. Uh, Except for a few scenes, this is not really some animal rights movie, even though, uh, Yerji talks about it that way. It isn't, you know, it's not like a moralistic, you know, the last scene really nails that. But yeah, I think that, what it that just speaks to like his kind of the cinema that he makes which is just like he's just fully engaged with moment to moment like what's happening on the screen every scene is like 
a different kind of set piece that plays out and uses different tricks and different elements of of cinema to just kind of I don't know assault the viewer present you with images that you have not seen before the the scene that I remember that most strongly is the uh like football riot when they come after the donkey and then there's like which Followed is just by the shot robot in a way dog. that is really like it it's like funny and then gets really scary really fast and really dark and it's just oh, sorry. go ahead well, I was just going to ask you, like, what do you make of the politics of this movie? I was thinking about that scene, and I kind of... I have n- I, I have no thoughts about that. I cannot under... I, I mean, other than, the, other than this kind of um, pro-vegetarianism. Because yeah. it feels to me like there's some attempt at making commentary, especially with this uh, very dramatic scene in a truck, uh, but I, I don't. It's not quite coherent, and I. That's the part of the movie oh, that right. doesn't yeah, yeah, work yeah. for the, me. That kind of like sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I thought I, of I it I'm as a pretty then. purely humanist movie. So it's not to me. It didn't seem like it was about politics in Aquinas. a real world sense. <laughs> what? I, Aquinas. Yeah. No, but I think it's humanist, even though you yeah, know, yeah. it has a donkey. Yeah. I like. I don't think it's about like r- making political commentary. I think it's about you know human values of how we live in the world with each other and, you know, those kind of base human values, which is also why I'm hesitant to even read too much political import into this movie, you know. It, that scene is a little bit complicates your, I mean, right? It's like a uh, immigrants who don't speak the line, they're in France or Italy at, the, at that, they're asking for a take of our handout and then like, it. I don't know, can we spoil? <laughs> And it goes badly, and uh, the guy's—the guy who gets killed—is trying to do the right thing and be nice, and help these people. And it's maybe not um, politically a, a, an idea that is very palatable for me. But uh, the, I don't know. Anyway, what, like, where do you where do you? I come mean, down I think there? ultimately, I, I agree with Devika that it is a, about humanism, it's and more it's moral than political. Right? It, yeah, it's comparing the way we treat each other. Uh, to the way we treat this donkey, which for some could be problematic to compare human beings to donkey, but for him, it's like you're uh, the donkey is living too, right? You should be flattered. Are we ready to reveal our final, our top movie of the year? But first, before we even get close, like let's just take a moment, settle yeah. ourselves. No, let's hear. Breathe uh, in. Yeah, breathe in. <laughs> let's hear some. Okay, let's hear some guesses. Like what's what's. We're hearing a lot of tar. We're hearing a lot. We heard an avatar. (laughs) Ambitious. Oh, man, I forgot. I was going to try to talk about Avatar a lot tonight, but I totally forgot, actually. Um, (laughs) Another movie in which a a woman plays uh, her her mother and her younger self. Does that, is is that in your top 25? It is. All right. I I loved, I've I've seen it twice already. Some of us plebs haven't seen it. I haven't so. seen it yet, I'm, yeah. but I am excited to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard an everything everywhere all at once. I've heard a tar, a decision to leave, crimes of the, of the future. future. All quiet on the Western Front. RRR. Decision to leave. What did you say, sir? You had one. All quiet on the Western Front. You know, there was another Hong Sang Soo movie released this year, and I feel like Jordan said the girl and the spider. Return to Soul, Corsage, damn, all right. The girl and the spider. That would be truly a list. <laughs> there's, that would three, be a, there's 
three people in this the room who, who voted like number one. Can I can movie. I ask what your number ones were? Do we have time for that? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, okay, before we reveal before. the mine actually was the girl and the spider. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number one was a film oh. called. Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, okay. Bilga, but, but let's finish this. Listeners, the, yeah. uh, the film was revealed. We'll get to it in a Wait, minute. Wait, what, Bilga, what was yours? Um, my number one was a film called Athena, which um, which I've seen many, many times. I think is you know, certainly going to be on my decade best by the time the decade is over. I know the decade is young, but a lot of people have not seen it. It's on Netflix because Netflix released it and did a somewhat shitty job of releasing it, but... Surprise! Um, I went with Tar. Yeah. Tar. Uh, mine was uh, Sergei Loznitsa's Bobby R. Context. Great movie, yeah. Uh, mine was One Fine Morning, the Mia Hansen Ooh, yeah. Film, yeah. which I feel like is a... Uh, so how do we feel about Crimes of the Future? Crimes of the Future. Okay. This is hilarious. <laughs> I just realized about a minute ago what it was going to be, and I was like, "What? Wow, okay, all right. I have to say, so when we were tabulating the results, I was surprised too, even though I really love this movie. Um, and not surprised that it was this movie. There just wasn't a consensus pick. Like last year, it was pretty clear... Yeah, we knew it would be Memoria days. You know, there were these that everyone was loving. Crimes of the Future actually was a little divisive when it came out this summer. I loved it. It was was a champion. It it won by dint of kind of everybody had it in their top ten. Everybody not by being one on a lot of lists. You know, a lot of people did have it one, but not. But it wasn't necessarily like years past where it's just like there's a clear. Number one. Or it wasn't necessarily two. number one on a lot of people's lists, but it was, it did rank, yeah. you know, in a lot of people's lists and it ranked well. So that says something. Yes. It really got under people's skin, you might say. It dug <laughs> deep into their abdomens and <laughs> stayed there throughout the year. Um, so, crimes of the future. So I did see this the same week I saw Flux Gourmet, which I would say if you loved this, that that is a good movie to watch in in companionship with this. Um, I don't love this movie, but I will say, as with almost every Cronenberg movie, I sort of go in and watch them and think this is a drama, and then I'm like, ugh. And then I leave, and then a month later, I'm like, oh, that was a comedy. That was hilarious. And and if I can get there, then I'm really happy with the film, and that is sort of where I landed with it. And I do appreciate a lot of what he's doing, um, but it isn't one I would go to bat for, so I'm curious to hear everybody else's I really liked it. So I've seen it since I made my list. Otherwise, I would have put it on there. Uh, But uh, yeah, I think it does feel like there's something to that, a drama at the time. And then in retrospect, I'm just thinking about how cheeky he is. And, and, you know, and like he's a guy who loves wordplay. This movie is, you know, surgeons perform surgery. So this movie is about surgery as performance art. You know, it's just there's something fun and clever to that, despite all the movie's darkness. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it was great performances from powerhouses, you know, who doesn't want to see Viggo Mortensen do anything and, and Lisa do. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, Bill. Like, what, Viggo Mortensen, like, orgasm after he eats, like, a bite of food. Right. And a line <laughs> the like. best ending scene of any movie this year. Very um, EO-like, too. Yeah. The, the surgery, surgery is the new sex is maybe my movie line of the year. <laughs> For sure. 
I mean, I I really loved this film when I saw it. I I love it because it's weird and it's not perfect. Like it's a very it's a film that that's afraid not to not be perfect because it's really wrestling with big ideas. You know, Cronenberg is really kind of it's a it's a properly existential film, right? And it's a film that's unafraid to be cerebral. It's unafraid to really what? It's very talky. It's talky. It's kind of a thought experiment. The whole thing is very obviously a thought experiment. But it's also really funny and like has these B-movie elements and, you know, just kind of schlocky. But it's how many, I don't know, how many films this year have made me think like this one did, you know, and just gave me like the words and the ideas, but didn't tell me what to think, you know, but like just opened up this door of provocation and and consideration and I I just and I love that Cronenberg is able to operate on these two levels on bodily level where like the film was quite difficult to watch for me as someone who's quite squeamish you know there's just so much happening with the body people are being cut into and you know it's just there's a lot of like sex that is kind of like yeah the surgery I think after we we walked out of this press screening and i said like i just don't get the like surgery is sex like it's just not no, what something you said that, was like, i just don't understand how pain can be like pleasurable <laughs> i think i did say i'm pretty pain which like maybe i'm like showing my <laughs> basic yeah. but you know it's it's on it operates very much on the sensual level like when you're watching this film you will flinch you will experience like pleasure you'll maybe feel aroused like all of those things but it is also operating on the intellectual level in a very rich way and i just don't i just feel like it's very rare to see things like that and i think that's why it struck a chord and that's why even though it's not everyone's number 1 it stayed with like almost everyone we polled, you know, it just stayed with them. Totally. It's like a, a philosophical kind of like cyborgian tract, much like existence, you know, about the fusion of ev- the evolution of technology with biology. But exist. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't want to push back on this movie because I actually liked it quite a bit, but I also, it's not like, it's not even my close, like top five Cronenberg for me. I don't think yeah. And I think that's because I think it just is, it's like too talky for me. I think after that, the first scene I think is really like great. And I was really excited. The first scene where the young boy is eating the plastic garbage can and then the the mom like, and he's out by the lake. Another mom that kills her child. Yeah, Yeah, more infanticide. But it's such a a mysterious and powerful, and it's just, the images are are there. There's something to grab onto visually and like cinematically. And then it kind of becomes like a, like a thought experiment or a play even, or, uh, and in which the characters are just kind of reading lines and working through ideas, which are very compelling. And yes, there's surgery and violence and, or, you know, sexy cutting into people and whatnot, (laughs) (laughs) what have you. But it, it gets like kind of, it's just, it devolves into kind of a comedy sketch by the end for me in many ways. Like the, the weird ladies who are, who fix the machine who run around and kill people randomly. I don't know. There's elements of it that didn't Kristen quite work Stewart's for me. Kristen Stewart I thought was actually really funny and kind of like coming from a different movie in a way. 
Boga has thoughts. Yeah, I let's hear, it. Let's hear I Boga. I hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Boga. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I hate this. I, I am I am I am lacking uh, some of the brain cells that allow people to appreciate late period Cronenberg films because um, he used to be one of my he, favorite he filmmakers. Differently. He he used to be one of my favorite filmmakers for so long, um, and I. Except maybe for Cosmopolis, which I liked, but there is a—I mean, it, it actually—I can even pinpoint it. But halfway through, um, a history of violence, just Cronenberg movies just stop working for me. And and I mean that happened to me with um, uh, Dangerous Method. Uh, happened to me yeah. with um, Eastern Promises. Uh, I mean, I, I just. You know, there's something just very glacial about the filmmaking, the talking. I mean, a lot of the things you guys have said, you know, talking. They sound good. I like that in movies. No, but I mean, it's, there's just, I don't know what it is. And I was very excited for this because, you know, it, it was a script that he had written earlier in his career. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe he's kind of going back to this. And it was, it. I mean, it felt like that, but, but there's something about... I mean, I love late style generally. I actually find that fascinating in filmmakers, but something about Cronenberg's late style has just ceased to work for me. Um, and I tried. I mean, I, 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 was, I went to a press screening of it, um, you know, fell asleep at one point, and then, uh, and then I... And then later on with the screener, because 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 the, because the direction, there's something wrong with I, the direction. I'm with Bilga. I'm with Bilga. <laughs> And then I got a and then I got a screener. Yeah, maybe. I mean, th that that might actually be part of it because I, I mean I don't find the imagery that provocative or, or shocking. I don't know why. Yeah. Because um, it is you know it's not like it's it's not something I'm into. So it's not like it, right, it's right. not like this is mundane for it, me. But it's just like there's something that's like a little, okay, yeah, all right. Like they're stabbing I, I, each other in the alley and the, the leg ears. and like making the out. There's there's people. there's maybe an immediacy I'm missing. You know, there's a, there's a kind of you know it does like you you said I think feels kind of like a thought exercise and, and that's sort of that quality just turns me off. And and I will say um you know I, I went back you know when I when I got a screener of it I, I watched it again and. I, fall fell asleep again. I tried three times, all three times. Fell. I'm just like, okay, you know what? It's not me. It's him. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably give it another shot. So many people love it so much yeah. that you know, I'll, I'll, I'll happily give it another shot. I will say point. my. You have an opportunity to in <laughs> about <laughs> no, maybe not tonight. My favorite thing about this movie is that he reused the title from a, like a totally different, yeah. connected story. I just think that's hysterical he's very well, funny and i think that points to something i really like about this film the fact that he's yeah reusing the same title he used he there's a 70s film he made that was yeah. called crimes of the future it's i think the late the style aspect actually i found really appealing because in this film i could very much sense an older artist at the sort of latter part of his career reflecting on what it means to make art what it means to make art in a world that seems to be ending and there's almost it's almost like a shedding of a lot of the stylistics and just like getting to the point like this there's is what a I'm guy who about. has ears so it's like sewed onto his whole body like shedding the stylistics seems no, but a little if bit. you think look at it within cronenberg's ooh, i think yes there's all that but 
it is ultimately very talky. It's about ideas. Yeah. It's not about the years sewn on the bodies. You That's know? the nail on the head for me. I love all the talking. There's so few movies, it feels like nowadays, that are truly about ideas. But to take this premise, what if the human body evolved as fast as our technology is evolving? And then to just run with that uh, is so exciting to me. Yeah, I'm not. It, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Now I'm thinking of it as like a Whit Stillman movie with like guys with ears sewn on their body and I'm yeah. liking it a little bit more. Yeah, I want to see that. I'm coming around. I mean, everyone should go watch it for sure. Yeah, right definitely. Now. I think it's a, a yeah, interesting, valuable thing. <laughs> so this is like the worst thing you've said about a movie all evening. <laughs> An it's not my favorite. Valuable. It's not my favorite movie tonight. And I actually love The Dangerous Method too. Not that we have to talk about that now. But. Well, I mean, we can have, do a podcast about that because not my favorite. So we, <laughs> we do have the screening soon and I think some people will be going to see the film. So let's reveal the full top 20. Yeah, and let's then do take, that. Yeah. So let's count it down. Okay, so 11 is actually Tar, which many people were clamoring for in the top 10. But we actually did a full podcast debating Tar. So if you want to hear more about Tar... Seek that out, the film yeah. comment podcast on Tar. Tar Wars, it's called. Uh, number 12, we have Decision to Leave. Number 13, we have The Girl and the Spider, my number one movie of the year. So I really recommend people check it out. Number 14, we have The Fablements, Steven Spielberg. Which, which I maintain would have made the top 10 if it had come out earlier in the year. That's how this stuff works. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, <laughs> One Fine Morning, which was my number one. And I and I hope gets a you know wider viewership in the next couple months. Um, a night of knowing nothing. Yeah, that was one of my top picks. Mine yeah, too. Fantastic film. If you haven't heard about it, it's on Criterion Cha Criterion Channel right now. Also, first feature. I think it it's remarkable that it made the top twenty. And yeah, one of so the best happy films to see it. Uh, stars at Noon, the divisive Claire Denis film, and both sides of the blade didn't make the top 20, which, is, which was which very shocking, interesting. Shocking. Much to my yeah. disappointment. That's my yeah. number three. Both sides of the blade? Yeah. I remember we saw it together, yeah. and yeah, you, you, you were raving about you it. You know, I also loved both sides of the blade and did not care as much for stars at noon, but yeah. yeah. I was into them so. both. There might be some recency stuff here too, because it came out earlier mm -hmm. in the year, but I also it's think harder more. To see. But more people were strident about stars at noon. There was, yes. It was much more controversial. It was about, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and then we have Il Buco. At 18. 18. Wonderful. A beautiful film. Um, Armageddon Time at 19. At 19. <laughs> and uh, we had a tie for 20. Wow. Those were both on my list. Jane Schoenbrunn's We're there. All Going to the World's Fair. <laughs> and uh, Terrence Davies' Benediction. Yeah, and we're all going to the World's Fair, also a debut uh, feature by Jane Schoenbrunn. Um, also, I mean, I'm just very excited by these these films. Yeah. Benediction, a really like beautiful Terrence Davies film that more people need to watch. Yeah, he's in, he's in great form. Yeah. Another one of those things where I think like not, not enough people saw that yeah. film. Yeah. And a film that really should be seen on a big screen, Benediction. So if anybody, anybody's listening, bring it back. <laughs> And um, that is our top 20. Tonight we'll have all these, the top 20 and the top 10 lists on the website. And we've had our critics write about each film, write something short about each film. So you can really read why each of these films deserves its place. So check it all out. 
And thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank you. And thank you to our incredible guests. Yeah, thank you so much. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting The Super 8 Years. This official selection of the 60th New York Film Festival was written and narrated by French author Annie Ernaux, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Literature. Compiled from gorgeously textured home movies, the film offers a remarkable visual extension of her ongoing literary exploration of history, family, and memory. The Super 8 Years is now playing at Film at Lincoln Center and DCTV's Firehouse Cinema in New York City, and is coming soon to select theaters and digital platforms.